Sewer bills are going up for San Diego's single-family homes. There are folks who are still struggling from the economic impacts of COVID-19, and this is definitely not an ideal time to do that. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The desperate situation of Haitian refugees at the Mexican border. It's shaping up to be one of the largest expulsion efforts of migrants or refugees in the United States in decades. Suicide Prevention Month finds the number of San Diego suicides declining. And the latest Cinema Junkie podcast traces the evolution of Asian images on film. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can, all right? Thanks. Single-family homeowners will bear the brunt of a sewer rate increase approved by the San Diego City Council Tuesday, but council members who approve the hike unanimously say that's only because single-family units have not been paying their fair share of the bill. The rising rates are aimed at updating an old sewer infrastructure, which could collapse in some areas. The hike will also add funds to the city's pure water sewage recycling system. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrett. David, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, rates will start going up for single-family homeowners next year, but not for multifamily units and businesses. Why is that? Well, it turns out they did an analysis, which is required by state law to make sure that they're not overcharging or undercharging anyone. Uh, And the analysis showed that uh, people live in condos and apartments and businesses have been overpaying for a long time. Uh, based on the city's previous calculations and that people who live in single-family homes have been underpaying by a significant margin. And how much will rates increase for single-family payers? It'll be 17% immediately. That's in January of 2022. And then it's uh, about 31% over a four-year period. Uh, So that's a pretty steep, uh, steep increase. And how much is that in dollars and cents? Uh, Well, if you take a typical single family that uses, I guess, 700 cubic gallons, I I always get confused about what they use, but basically a a typical family uh, uh, in a single family home, their bill now is about $40.52 a month, and that'll go immediately to $47.64, and then it'll slowly climb up to like $49, $51, and then it'll be $53 in January of 2025. And then rates actually go down next year for businesses and multifamilies. Tell us about that. They do. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could look at it as, wow, that's frustrating if you live in a single family home to see the other people go down. On the other hand, for about the last 10 years, it appears that people in condos and apartments have been overpaying. So in a way, you could look at it from either direction. But yes, they will see an immediate dip, uh, uh, 12% for people in condos and apartments, and then 5% for businesses starting in January. 
Will rates eventually go up over the five years for businesses and multifamilies? They want to try to correct it as soon as possible. So it happens next year. So I think that that is correct. Although it, it kind of it, it flattens after that initial increase or decrease. So I would say if you're in a business or a condo or apartment, the next five years is mostly stays break even. This doesn't seem like a particularly great time for the city to raise rates as people struggle out of the pandemic. What kind of rationale did city council members give for their vote? They certainly recognize the fact that there are folks who are still struggling from the economic impacts of COVID-19 and that this is definitely not an ideal time to do that. Uh, Unfortunately, the city's in a weird spot on sewer rates. They haven't raised them in about 11 years, and they haven't actually studied the issue since 2007. And that's partly because of the Great Recession that happened back in in 07, 08. Uh, They had just adopted new rates at that time, and it turned out that the rates were probably too high Um, So they didn't feel they had any need for additional revenue, so they just left it alone. And now 14 years later, it's time to to figure out what's been going on with sewer rates. Uh, And so it really is, they say, a really needed increase. Infrastructure has aged a lot in that 14-year period, and the city has moved forward on this pure water program. That's a sewage recycling system that's going to make San Diego more water independent, but it's also very expensive. Here's something Councilmember Raul Campillo said about raising the sewer rates. We live in one of the least affordable regions in the United States, but we have a duty as elected officials to make those hard decisions that councils pass have failed to do, which is to present you, the public, with the current reality. Let's talk about that pure water program, David. How will the city's pure water program benefit from this rate hike? Uh, This rate hike will uh, provide a lot of the money needed to build the pipeline and the uh, treatment facility that are the key elements of pure water. Uh, Pure Water is part of the city's sewer and water system, so it's going to be funded by ratepayers, and raising rates on ratepayers is part of the way to pay for it. And how important is Pure Water to the city's long-term sewage structure and, I guess, overall uh, water structure? It's essential. We live in a desert, and we are constantly facing the threat of drought. That's people and businesses and our economy, Uh, and this will create some water independence for San Diego. Uh, We'll be less reliant on imported water. Uh, but on the other hand, as, as critics will say, it, it is it is quite expensive to do it this way. Uh, and so this is sort of the, the, the bill has come due on these these rate increases. And for anybody who feels there was a certain unfairness in the sewage rate hike, it's good to know a water rate hike is for everybody. It was approved by the council yesterday. How much was that and why? Uh, it's a 3% increase. It's a pass-through, they call it, uh, which means that it was basically a, an increase in the cost of imported water from the county water authority and that the city says we're just sort of passing it on to customers. And they also sort of to their own horn saying that it was a 5.6% increase and they only passed on 3%. Um, but yeah, uh, that, that, that's going up and water has, continues to go up here for sure. And is there any help available if these increases present a hardship to ratepayers? You know, more so than ever. I mean, the city has had a longtime program called Help to Others, which uh, you can go and sign up if you're lower income. Uh, that doesn't get as many participants as the city has always hoped that it would. But now there's a special COVID assistance uh, for people who struggle covering rent, utilities, or internet services, or other essential items during COVID. Uh, and on the city's website, there's a website that they give for you to go to uh, if you feel like you might apl- uh, qualify for that. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, thank you. Thanks.
In recent days, an international bridge along the U.S.-Mexico border in the town of Del Rio, Texas, has become the epicenter of a wave of migration by Haitians attempting to reach the United States. Haiti faces ongoing instability due to the assassination of the country's president earlier this year, along with echoes of several natural disasters going back to the devastating earthquake in 2010. These and other factors have led citizens of the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere to seek opportunities elsewhere, including in the San Diego-Tijuana border region. We are joined today by Elliot Spaggett, San Diego correspondent with the Associated Press, who has been covering this developing story. Elliot, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here, Jake. This latest wave of Haitian migration is centered near a bridge in a small town in Texas called Del Rio. What is the situation here in the San Diego-Tijuana border region? There's a very large camp, uh, probably uh, 2,000 migrants, uh, largely they were initially Haitians and Central Americans, have not been there myself recently, but I understand it's become more Mexican. Of course, Tijuana was the initial uh, and still probably most popular destination for Haitians who left the country after the 2010 earthquake uh, for South America, mostly Brazil and Chile, and that they make their way up by foot on bus through about eight to 10 countries to the U.S. border. The the first large influx that we saw was in 2016 in Tijuana. Uh, Most people were, were released into San Diego on humanitarian grounds, and then President Barack Obama shifted course And a very large population was sort of stranded at the border uh, in Tijuana. They have many of Mexican residency. They've they've married uh, and had children in Mexico uh, working at the Maquiladoras, Haitian restaurants, a very vibrant community, a little Haiti neighborhood. But then the other thing that's happened is they've moved to different locations along the border with the ultimate goal of getting to the United States. So there was a large presence in Ciudad Juarez earlier this year across from El Paso. And then, of course, this very sudden arrival in Ciudad Acuna, which is across the border from Del Rio, a town of 35,000 that, uh, as of last weekend, had 15,000 migrants camped under the bridge. So equal to almost half the town, mostly Haitian migrants. Hmm. And are we seeing an influx of Haitian migrants here? Yes. uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there has been an increase, not just of Haitians, but... uh, you know, every every nationality, and particularly people from countries outside of the traditional sending countries, which would be Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. From those four countries that I mentioned, they're, they're going to get most likely, or certainly if you're a single adult, will get expelled back to Mexico under this pandemic-related authority. But they cannot do that with the uh, Haitians and people. Ecuadorians is another very large presence in the United States. Uh, they just don't have the the resources. But on Sunday, the uh, in response to this very, very unusual uh, situation in Del Rio, the U.S. started a deportation flights today, it's, or expulsion flights, I should call them, is this, the technical term, to Haiti. There were supposed to be seven today. There were three on, on Sunday that have been building up. So it's, it's shaping up to be one of the largest expulsion efforts of migrants or refugees in the United States in decades Hmm. What is the root of the latest wave of Haitian migration to the U.S.? In the 90s, it was by sea. Uh, They were intercepted by the Coast Guard and taken to Guantanamo Bay or or just sent back. Since the earthquake in 2010, they've been flying to Central America. There were many, many in Brazil uh, until the Olympics uh, ended and the jobs dried up. And that's, again, when I mentioned uh, this, this large push to Tijuana. That was people, many people who had been working in Brazil. And then when the economy went south, 
they uh, they came up to Tijuana. Hmm. For a Haitian migrant who arrives at the U.S.-Mexico border today, what can they expect and what options do they have? Uh, great question. Um, I, the short answer is I don't know because the Biden administration has been very opaque about what what is plan what is doing. Uh, even you know the question of who is being put on the flights to Haiti and who is being released. Uh, as far as I can tell from the two U.S. officials, it's predominantly single adults that are getting expelled. If you're a family, uh, especially you know one with young children, pregnant, LGBT, disabled. Uh, I, I would think, and this is just based largely on past practice, you're, you're more likely to get released in the United States. Hmm. What are you hearing from Haitians living in Tijuana about the current situation? We had a reporter there on Monday who was went to a restaurant there on the border, uh, a Haitian restaurant. And there were a lot of uh, a lot of Haitians there who were just trying to get the latest. Um, they tend to communicate on uh, social media, Facebook, WhatsApp. Tele- Telegram, uh, even YouTube videos, uh, and you know the the one person we talked to uh, in depth was uh, had just arrived in Tijuana on Sunday night. Had hoped to go to Del Rio, but had picked up on social media that you know everything that was going on and decided that it wasn't wasn't the best place and uh, and came to Tijuana. So I think I think people in Tijuana you know need to do a little more reporting, but I think they're probably reluctant. The Haitians in Tijuana are reluctant to go to Del Rio at this time, given uh, given the expulsion flights and all of the chaos there. Hmm. And what is the outlook for Haitians here in the local border region? I mean, are officials expecting an influx similar to what has been seen in Texas? No, um, but you know this, the Texas situation happened very, very suddenly, uh, and, and as I mentioned, it's a population that moves around a lot. We'll move from Tijuana to El Paso to Yuma is another area where they've been, maybe back to Tijuana, uh, and 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 it's really kind of a mysterious how they make these decisions. So some kind of group psychology. So I wouldn't want to predict. Hmm. And do you see anything to suggest that the current wave of migration to the U.S. will slow anytime soon? No, I don't. Um, you know, uh, Biden, uh, President Biden uh, ended a number of policies that were uh, that he considered cruel and inhumane, most notably the remain in Mexico policy where uh, asylum seekers were forced to wait in Mexican border cities like Tijuana for their court hearings in San Diego in, in very dangerous conditions. That was taken away, but there was really no system put in its place. I mean, uh, President Biden has talked repeatedly about creating a humane asylum system. We don't know what that looks like yet, uh, eight months into his term. He's made some moves, uh, but really what needs to happen, I think, is a wholesale reconfiguration of the asylum system. If what we're seeing today uh, and in the last several years of these these periodic increases, very large increases in people, if that's going to change, um, they need to sort of, you know, remake the asylum system. I've been speaking with Associated Press correspondent Elliot Spaggett. Elliot, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Jade. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another hasn't. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. 
Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Gift Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. With extremely high COVID hospitalization rates in the Central Valley, pediatricians are warning local doctors to be on the lookout for a related condition found in children who have been exposed to the virus. Madi Balaños from Valley Public Radio reports. Six-year-old Bryce Moore shouts from one side of the small soccer field where he is practicing for his first game. His mom, Fresno resident Jennifer Moore, describes him as a happy-go-lucky kid. But nine months ago, he was anything but that, she says. Moore and her husband tested positive for COVID in November 2020. She says Bryce, then five years old, tested negative and didn't show any symptoms associated with the virus. And so my husband and I got through that and recovered. And then at the end of January... Um, We picked him up from school on a Friday, and he had a little bit of a headache. That was nearly two months after she and her husband contracted COVID. Over the next few days, his headache got worse. He developed a fever, refused to eat, and could barely walk. It was quite difficult to see him go through that. It took three visits to the emergency room at Valley Children's Hospital in Madeira before his doctors finally asked more if Bryce had been exposed to COVID in the last few months. And through that, it came up that my husband and I had had COVID. And it was like it clicked right away. They knew exactly what it was. Doctors diagnosed Bryce with multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, or MIS-C a post-infectious phenomenon that is occurring in children, according to Dr. Reshma Patil, pediatric rheumatologist at Valley Children's Hospital. It is not a disease or a syndrome itself. It is essentially what I like to call a um, tornado or cascade of events that's happening when the immune system is on overdrive. As schools reopen amid a surge driven by the Delta variant, Patel says she's been working to educate pediatricians across the state on how to identify and treat Miss C. And so right now we are seeing a uh, big surge in the Delta variant and rise in COVID-19 infection cases now, especially in the vaccinated populations. And so we are uh, bracing ourselves for a MSC surge soon to follow. The symptoms for Miss C include fever, headaches, neck pain, and sometimes even vomiting or diarrhea. Because it's a new phenomenon, doctors have a hard time diagnosing it, she says. But the most obvious sign is if a child has these symptoms and has been exposed to COVID. It is occurring about two to eight weeks after the initial COVID may have been present in that child. There were nearly 5,000 reported cases of Miss C and 41 related deaths in the nation as of August 27th, the CDC said. That included nearly 600 cases in California. While Miss C is considered fairly rare, it is disproportionately hitting Black and Latino children. And given the number of total COVID cases in the Central Valley, Jennifer Moore says she's concerned about Bryce's health as he enters kindergarten. There is that fear there because I know we do our best to stay safe, but we don't always know what everybody else is doing. But also, I want him to be a kid. 
That's why she also urges parents to take the virus seriously and follow CDC guidelines until a vaccine is available for kids younger than 12. These days, Bryce is back to playing soccer with his neighborhood friends. But his mom says because the long-term effects of Miss C are still unknown, doctors will continue monitoring his health. That was Valley Public Radio's Madi Bolaños. Wildland firefighters accept risk when they head out to battle a blaze, but Cal Fire firefighters are getting sick and some have even died during training. This story is a collaboration between the investigative unit at Columbia Journalism School, the California Newsroom, and KPCC. Jacob Margolis and Brian Edwards have the report. On a hot July day a few years ago, Cal Fire firefighter Yaroslav Katkov was hiking on a trail near Temecula, when he collapsed. By the time he got help, it was too late. He died at the age of 28, not on the fire line, but while training. They told me that everything that could have been done was done. Ashley Valerio was Katkov's longtime partner. And like, I believed them and I like trusted them. My reporting partner, Brian and I reviewed hundreds of pages of documents from Cal Fire and Cal OSHA. We found a pattern of seasonal firefighters and inmates getting sick and some even dying during what should have been one of the least dangerous things they do, training. Exactly, Jacob. Over the last year and a half, almost four dozen Cal Fire firefighters have suffered from heat illness during training. And since 2003, five firefighters have died during training exercises, where experts say heat appears to have played a role in their deaths. And all these cases point to bigger issues within the agency. For one, there's a culture that values pushing on at all costs. Two. Cal Fire has major issues with helping people improve their fitness levels safely. And three, even before they get started training, insiders say, Cal Fire's process for catching pre-existing medical conditions is lacking. Okay, let's start with the punitive culture issue, because it's a big part of this story. Yeah, and seems to be a big part of Yaroslav Katkov's story in particular. He collapsed and died after being pushed by his captain to do a training hike a second time, after he'd already been showing signs of heat illness. Cal Fire demoted the captain after the investigation. We were told by multiple current and former Cal Fire employees that pushing firefighters beyond their breaking points is common. In a written response, Cal Fire said it vigorously rejects the notion that a punitive culture exists. But there have been similar issues since Katkov's death. I'll admit it, we had problems in San Diego in the last four months. That's Cal Fire Union President Tim Edwards, who spoke with us after we shared what we found. He says that a supervisor had to be admonished for the way he was treating seasonal firefighters. Making them hike when when they weren't feeling good. Making them hike thinking if you pushed them a little bit further, you know, it would help them. Another reason Cal Fire firefighters are getting injured during training? Uneven physical fitness standards and a lack of consistent training standards. That's a problem for seasonal firefighters who might take six months off between deployments and not show up in firefighting shape. Here's Edwards again. Is there a physical fitness standard coming onto the job? No, there's not. Absolutely not. And we've been pushing for years for one. In a statement, Cal Fire said, quote, each must do his, her part year round to ensure that they're preparing for the upcoming fire season. Our investigation found many firefighters don't always get clear guidelines for improvements after taking the winter off. According to the injury reports we reviewed, a majority of the seasonal firefighters that got sick with heat in the last year and a half did not have documented conditioning plans. And the final big issue? Seasonal firefighters usually only get basic physicals before they start working. 
In the Kakov investigation documents, Cal Fire Captain Cesar Neri is quoted as saying, you could get a better physical playing high school football than the one required by Cal Fire. Other departments often require firefighters to go through more extensive testing before they start in the field. Meaning, for Cal Fire firefighters, there's a chance that bigger, unknown pre-existing conditions could be missed. When we spoke with Ashley Valerio, Katkov's longtime partner, she was angry. You're supposed to, like, have faith that those people would, like, keep them safe. Definitely it shows what kind of leadership that they're willing to allow. How to keep firefighters safe during training is a question that will only become more pressing as California's wildfire outlook continues to worsen. I'm Jacob Margolis. And I'm Brian Edwards. Joining me is Jacob Margolis, science reporter with KPCC and LAist and co-author of this report. Jacob, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Give us a little background on CAL FIRE's seasonal firefighters. How much of their year is spent fighting fires? Yeah, you know, it, it varies depending on how, just how uh, long our fire season is. But as you and the listeners probably know, fire season's pretty much year round now. I mean, especially during drought years. And so uh, these firefighters could be working anywhere from, you know, let's say April or May all the way through November or possibly December. Um, but then they do take some time off uh, and then before they're before they're brought back on in the spring. And since they aren't full-time firefighters, are they relegated to certain types of jobs? You know, what we've seen is that they oftentimes, like the firefighter ones, which are seasonal, are often doing probably some of the most difficult grunt work, uh, especially as incarcerated firefighters have been uh, released over the past few years at higher rates. Uh, More seasonal firefighters have been brought in to replace them. And those incarcerated firefighters were doing a lot of that grunt work as well. It's often some of the most dangerous work. And so, um, you know, they're they're down and in it and in a crucial part to our firefighting response. Maybe like mopping up a fire, something something like that? Yeah, I mean, it could be digging lines. It could be helping mop up the fire afterwards. Uh, you know, I, I think many of the ranks get down and dirty and and really work very hard, but especially the seasonals uh, are, are, are in the dirt. And how much does CAL FIRE depend on seasonal firefighters and incarcerated inmates? Yeah, you know, they're a crucial part of our firefighting force. There are more than or around 3,000 of them uh, currently this year, and there are about 5,000 or so full-time firefighters. And so, it, you know, a significant portion. It seems that when things go wrong in these training exercises, as you mentioned, one big problem is the culture that pushes these firefighters past their limits. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, you know, what we found was that, and we tell this through the story, as, as we mentioned, of Yaroslav Katkov, um, what we found is that there is absolutely an underlying uh, culture of, of push, 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 uh, kind of, and that can at times be punitive if, if certain captains or supervisors maybe don't think you're pushing hard enough. And in the piece, we did detail uh, the Katkov story and what happened with him. Um, and we also mentioned, you know, we ask. First off, we asked Cal Fire actually if they feel like there is a punitive culture where you know people might be pushed beyond their breaking point, and they said no. Um, you know, we spoke with an expert, Brent Ruby, out of the University of Montana, and he studied specifically wildland firefighter fitness for some time, and it's clear that firefighters need to have 
clear training plans that ramp up over time, like any kind of, you can consider them essentially endurance athletes and they slowly build up that fitness so that they're able to handle these hot and extreme situations when they're finally out in the field. As you mentioned, a Cal Fire union president says in your report, we've had some problems in San Diego. Can you expand on what he was talking about? Yeah, so there was an instance in the past few months of a supervisor pushing new seasonal firefighters um, to to the limit uh, during really hard conditions, uh, particularly during training. And so the union told us they had to step in and and say something to the supervisor and uh, kind of get them back in line. We did a story last week about a report from the Union of Concerned Scientists that increasingly high temperatures would soon make it more dangerous for everyone who works outdoors. How does that factor into the injuries and deaths of firefighters? Yeah, I mean, our our report obviously focuses on heat illness in particular, and uh, you can see heat illness in temperatures as low as 70 degrees. I mean, it's, it, it happens at temperatures that you might not expect, especially if you're hauling a ton of gear like these firefighters are. And as you know, we profiled just what was happening during training, the heat illness during training in particular, because we felt that that was the uh, probably safest environment for firefighters. You know, uh, they can't really control what's going on in emergency situations. But if you look at, uh, if you kind of pull out and look at the heat illness across the board over the past 18 months, there were something like 150 different cases if you included people going out in the field and actually executing on what they're like on knocking down fires. On one positive note, you found that a responsive supervisor could make a huge difference in firefighting training. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's up to supervisors to really monitor whether their people are suffering from heat illness. And, you know, we we do feel that CAL FIRE makes concerted efforts and has made concerted efforts. And there are plans or they've had a heat illness prevention plan since I believe 2001. Um, When all things are in place and people, supervisors are protecting their people and people know what signs of heat illness to look out for, you know, they're you end up in a much better place than if you're say pushing people past their breaking point in really extreme conditions during training, um, and not really helping them ramp up their fitness over a longer period of time. And so, you know, it, it is very possible to get to a place where, uh, and we've sp- spoken to multiple experts who say that heat illness is completely preventable. And especially during training, it is completely preventable. I've been speaking with reporter Jacob Margola, science reporter with KPCC and LAist. And Jacob, thank you. Thank you. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, and the number of reported suicides in San Diego County declined slightly in 2020 compared to the previous year. That's according to an annual report released this month by the San Diego County Suicide Prevention Council, where Stan Collins is a prevention specialist. He joins us now with more. Stan, welcome. Thank you for having me. According to your annual report, the total number of suicides dropped from 429 in 2019 to 419 in 2020. How significant is that decrease? Well, I think it's first you have to recognize that each of those numbers on paper is a life, is a community, a family that's you know experienced a tragedy. So although we have some hope about the numbers and the, the gain, you know, the reductions from 2018 are, are slightly more significant when we had, you know, 460. Um, but it's encouraging. 
What do you think could have contributed to this decrease? I think part of it is just there's been a lot more awareness over the last couple of years about what resources are available. I think our collective mental health was impacted during you know the past year and a half. And I think folks are, although we're, we were worried about the additional stressors that the pandemic and, and you know the, the other unrest brought to us, I think it has to do with a lot of work from a lot of different people, letting them know what resources are available. But as a society, I think more embracing conversations about mental health. Yeah. I mean, and as you mentioned, you know, with the extra stress and pressures from a global pandemic, I mean, were you expecting those numbers to increase? Or or do you think in some ways, the pandemic may have reduced stress for some people? I don't know about reducing stress. I think there was a lot of fears that suicides were going to increase with the added stressors. Historically, what we've seen in response to other tragedies or pandemics, the way that I refer to it is that we felt the earthquake, but maybe the tidal wave has yet to reach our shores. So I think it's, you know, as we're reemerging back into the world, transitioning out, you know, whether that's kids back into school or us back into the workplace, I think it's really important for us to keep that focus on our mental wellness and realize that we're all going to continue to be under stressors for quite a while now. So I think it's important to remain vigilant. That in mind, I mean, is the county doing something different now than it has in the past in terms of improving treatments? Well, regarding suicide prevention, a couple of years ago, the San Diego County Suicide Prevention Council released an update to our strategic plan. We're one of the few counties in California that actually has a plan. We're really fortunate that county behavioral health really invest in suicide prevention from the Up to Us campaign to a school-based project and the council. And so over the past few years, there's nine strategies outlined in that plan. And we've been able to build upon each of those layers. And so what we're really trying to do is get everyone to understand that each of us is just one spoke in the wheel, but no one entity can prevent suicide. And it's really about getting people outside of mental health and outside of suicide prevention to really embrace their role and empower them to understand that every one of us can help someone find their reasons for living. Were rates of suicide higher for certain age groups in 2020? So demographically, it does vary. So overall, the numbers did go down. But looking at some uh, more at the national data, there are specific groups, uh, young African American men we saw uh, did see a slight increase. So we can't just across the board say suicides are down. The pandemic obviously affected different groups in different ways. And so we can't just take it as a blanket win. We got to keep working. You're a suicide prevention specialist. So what does that mean on a day to day basis for you? A lot of what I do is around education and awareness. And as I was just speaking about, it's really about empowering the individual, whether they're a nurse, whether they're a school counselor, a law enforcement officer, an EMT, somebody at the unemployment line, uh, just to first recognize warning signs and then to be comfortable to have a conversation, to ask the question and not be afraid to say, are you thinking about suicide? We have a lot of fears about if we talk about it, we're going to cause it to happen. And the opposite is true. Only by talking openly and directly about suicide can we ever hope to prevent it. And a lot of what I do is just getting people to trust their instincts and embrace their own abilities. Like I said, not to convince somebody not to die, but to help them find reasons for living. And as I mentioned earlier, it is National Suicide Prevention Month. How can people help someone they think may be suicidal? I think the most important thing we can do is hold space and listen. Um, Like I just talked about, not be afraid to introduce a conversation about suicide and let them know that I'm willing to have that conversation. I think another part of it too is not be afraid to contact the crisis resources. Here in San Diego County, we're blessed to have the San Diego County Access and Crisis Line. And I really want to emphasize to folks, it's not just if you are in crisis, if you are supporting somebody through a crisis, if you're preparing to have a conversation with somebody, 
If you're sitting on the couch and you ask them, hey, are you thinking about suicide? And the answer is yes. One of the best next steps is to call the Access and Crisis Line and say, okay, what do we do now? How do I help keep this person safe? And other than the crisis line, are there other ways that the county is reaching out to help those in need? Yeah, we provide a training. It's called Question, Persuade, Refer, QPR. So we call it a gatekeeper training. And it's basically to help prepare individuals, again, to recognize the warning signs, have that conversation, and then know what their next steps are. So anybody who's interested can go to SPC for Suicide Prevention Council, spcsandiego.org to either sign up to attend a training or to host a training. But that's a great first step. I've been speaking with Stan Collins, Suicide Prevention Specialist for San Diego County Suicide Prevention Council. Stan, thank you very much. Really appreciate you shining a spotlight on suicide prevention. Thank you. If you have an emergency or just want to find out what help is available, you can call the San Diego Access and Crisis Line at 888-724-7240. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. Earlier this month, Marvel delivered its first Asian superhero in its cinematic universe with Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. But it's been a long, hard road getting to this point in Hollywood. For the latest episode of Cinema Junkie, host Beth Accomando speaks with Brian Hu, Artistic Director of the San Diego Asian Film Festival, about the evolution of Asian images on screen, from the stereotypes of yellow peril to Shang-Chi. This is an excerpt of the podcast. Brian, you have been the artistic director at the San Diego Asian Film Festival for 10 years. And, you know, one thing I think that mainstream white audiences may not appreciate because they see themselves on screen constantly in all sorts of variations. And for people who are Asian or Latino or African-American, there is this real sense that they were not seeing themselves on screen for a long time. So talk a little bit about what that kind of representation means and what the absence of that means for an audience. For decades, um, and this extends centuries if you include other media like literature and theater, which is that Asians in the media, Asians in popular culture in, in the West is othered, right? Like you're considered exotic. Um, you're there to, as somebody to conquer, like for instance, for some like white imperializing hero to conquer, or that you, you're here to kind of work, help the U.S. work through its own anxieties about, for instance, immigration or the Asian takeover, especially in like the 19th century, the early 20th century. Kill the white man and take his women. And then so you have these figures, villainous figures like Fu Manchu, who are there, like, like kind of embody all of what we fear about this this world that we don't understand. What have you done to this boy? Practically nothing as yet. What are you going to do to him? Merely inject a drop of serum into his blood. The injection of the serum will make his brain mine. In other words, he becomes a reflection of my will. He will do as I command, exactly as though I were doing it. I see. Another of your oriental tricks. 
their inscrutableness is something that's going to ultimately be our our downfall, and therefore we need to conquer it. So there's a little bit of that, um, like the the vilifying of Asianness, but also on the other end, sort of like an, an attempt to neutralize Asian the threat of the Asian by, for instance, making Asian men seem unthreatening sexually, um, by making Asian women seem conquerable sexually. So, so these are two kind of stereotypes that we see very much ingrained in American popular culture. Did you send for me, my father? My daughter, explain to this gentleman the rewards that might be his. Point out to him the delights of our lovely country the promise of our beautiful women. Now, we had the pleasure of having you introduce a screening of Fu Manchu that we had done here in San Diego. And you talked a little bit about kind of the social and historical context that those films came out, and this was in the 1930s, that kind of led to, it doesn't justify or forgive these representations, but it kind of gives you a context that explains why some of these images were popular on screen at that time. I mean, they're historically very fascinating. <laughs> like it's, I would never want to say like cancel these films. I think we should watch them to better understand really the minds of Americans uh, or, or like mainstream America rather than like the minds of, of evil Asian people, which are, are never actually represented on screen because all of these Asian characters are played by, by white actors. I am Charlie Chan, representative of federal government. The federal government? Miss Hall, tonight you report car stolen. Oh, that. But it wasn't stolen. It was merely borrowed. That is all. I'm most fortunate to have met such charming radio ladies. Hope to meet you again very soon, perhaps. And so watching it now, it's very clear that this sort of Asianness is a puppet that's being wielded by, by like a, a white establishment and, and by Hollywood. And so, yeah, so watching it, you get to see like what was the anxiety that Americans had about this sort of yellow peril, perhaps the, the takeover of our, of our jobs, of our, of our women by the, the, the mysterious Orient. Films in the 1930s came long after uh, a lot of Asian immigrants were coming in to help build the railroads. But there was this sense of there was Asian immigration at the time that was causing anxiety. And there were laws and, and you know, social issues that were going on at the time that just intensified these anxieties that Americans were having. Yeah, especially if we think about like Chinatowns as a place of like a, a, the mysterious Chinatown, which persists even, I mean, certainly through like Polanski's film. <laughs> Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. What happens in Chinatown stays in Chinatown. Like, like who who knows what's happening behind in the back of that Chinese restaurant? Like, like whether it's like opium dens or mahjong parlors or whatever, or prostitution or something. And, and so they yeah, have this mystery of it. And and one is it like we can accept it while it's taking place in Chinatown, but what happens when? "Quote unquote civil society um, and Chinatown worlds blend into each other. So a fear of of them coming into mainstream Americanness. Uh, so that was happening around this time, and, and that also was also helping to justify the Chinese Exclusion Acts, which had been around since the late 19th century. And yeah, during this time, like there were limits on how like Asian people moving to the United States. Like this was part of like American law to consider Asians as unwanted here in the United States. And this popular culture only reinforced that. So there's this period of kind of Asians being depicted as this yellow peril, and it was the combination of kind of the fear of immigration, but also as we move towards World War II, the Japanese are the enemy. 
But then there's also these kind of weird anomalies that pop up because we have something like Charlie Chan, which is not a superhero, but he's meant to be the brilliant detective a la Sherlock Holmes or something. He's not played by an Asian actor. If you must know, I, I wanted quiet and rest. I recently became a widow. So sorry. Also regret marriage. Very unhappy. What do you mean? Absence of wedding ring denote lack of affection for deceased husband. But it's an interesting moment to kind of contradict some of the other stereotypes. Yeah, the Charlie Chan is also Mr. Moto, played by Peter Lorre. You'll forgive me, but we are so out of touch with events here in Tong Moi. Permit me to introduce myself. I'm Mr. Moto. What are you doing in a country like this? I've been excavating in these ancient ruins in a pursuit of uh, archaeology. This would be the other side that I was talking to. So like the, the, on the one side, there are these attempts to show how Asians are threats to American society. But the other side is to to make that threat seem not that threatening by making these kinds of heroes seem very polite. They provide the uh, fortune cookie kind of wisdom. Coincidence like ancient egg leave unpleasant odor. But they don't really have very much in terms of charisma or personality or let alone desire, which we expect our heroes to have. I mean, think about like like the, the Indiana Jones type, right? Like you, you, you exude a certain kind of charm and you get the girl as opposed to, you know, you're just sitting here very politely solving crimes. Like, like that, that, that has a certain charm too, but it's also an exotic charm. You would never extend that to somebody who's not Asian necessarily. All right. I want to thank you very much for talking about Asian representation on screen. Thank you as always. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Brian Hu. To hear their full interview, go to kpbs.org slash podcasts and check out the latest episode of Cinema Junkie.